I'd like to begin at the beginning. And by that, I mean the very beginning. As in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first two things he made, the heavens and the earth. We usually gloss over that first one, the heavens, um, since the second one, the earth, dominates the rest of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, not to mention the rest of Scripture, not to mention the entirety of human history. We don't have much experience in history in the heavens. All of our history is here on the earth. And so we're biased towards the earth, since that's what we know. But let's talk about the heavens for a second. Earlier this year, scientists spotted a star going supernova and exploding. This was in February and this supernova, this star that exploded, was 10,000 times brighter than our sun. I can't imagine what that looks like or what that is at all. But it was 10,000 times brighter than our sun, and then it exploded. And this happened, this was 160 million light years away. So that means, as far as light travels in a year, which is pretty far, is my understanding. It takes about four minutes for light to get from the sun to earth. Okay, um, you're thinking of the return trip. That's what you're thinking of, there and back. Um, no, uh, it takes that length of time for, from the sun to us. So if you imagine 160 million years worth of light traveling, that's how far away this was. It's a measurement of both time and space that I cannot comprehend. And so however long it takes light to travel in 160 million years, whatever that distance is, 10 to the whatever Earth's power, that's how far away this thing is. And we're just seeing it now. So it, it happened millions of years ago, and we're just seeing it now. And that, to me, is bone-chilling. That freaks me out when I consider the vastness of the heavens. It's space and time. Space that we cannot measure, the vastness of the universe, and time that we cannot comprehend. I can imagine, vaguely, very vaguely and with incredibly weak and unreliable accuracy the train line that ran through Clyde remember that? that was like 25 years ago and my memory is that's like I can barely comprehend that 25 years it was so long ago to me that's a space of time that I can barely imagine and that was just a couple decades ago and yet the first and most basic the starting point for any theology like literally the starting point for the Bible and the basis on which all other theologies come, theology being the study of God, the first and most basic theology is that God created all of this incomprehensible space, immeasurable time, and he rules supreme over it all. Right? That's the first thing we learn in Scripture. That there is heaven, there is earth, and there is a God who created it and rules over it. And from there, all the other things we know about God are sourced. So if I create a birdhouse, I am not confined to that birdhouse. I, because I, I made it, I rule over it. If I want to paint it blue, I'll paint it blue. If I want to put a little decorative perch for a robin, I can put a little decorative perch for a robin. If I want to smash it against a wall, I'll make my wife upset. But I can do that if I want. I, am, I, I have dominion over that birdhouse. I am sovereign over my little blue with a decorative perch birdhouse. And all the vastness and complexity and beauty of unimaginable space and time is merely a cosmic birdhouse to our Heavenly Father. He rules over it and commands it into existence and he holds it together 
this one being, this creator, almighty God, is sovereign over that. The way that I would rule over a... I don't make very good birdhouses from experience. But when you think of the universe, that's a pretty good birdhouse. It's pretty intricate, complex, unimaginably small, and at the same time, unimaginably massive. And he rules over all of that. He created it. He commanded it. He spoke it into existence. And he holds it all together. So a few rules about God then. God is not part of creation. The creator is separate from his creation. He is not part of creation. He is not a created being like everything else we know and experience. Everything is created, but not him. He is separate from his creation. We would call this separateness holiness. That's what holiness means. Second, God is not bound by the rules of creation. He created rules. He's not, he didn't create rules. More like boundaries. He creates parameters for us to have freedom within. And all of the rules of our universe are created for the benefit of our finite, weak, little human minds. He is not bound by those things. He's not bound by time. He's above and beyond time. He's not bound by gravity or physics. He's above and beyond those things. And third of all, God is not subject to his creation. That would make no sense. If I were to create this birdhouse, that birdhouse has no power over me. It's just a birdhouse. And that same scale is the same as from our Heavenly Father to us. He is authoritative and powerful over everything he has made. Isaiah said it best, really, at the very end of his writings in in 66 verse 1. Isaiah says, as he's speaking for God, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So all of that, the unimaginable vastness of time and space that is the universe, that's just like a throne for him. He rests on it and he kicks his feet up on us, the earth, because he can, because he's sovereign over it. The earth is merely something for him to rest his feet on. So can we agree on these essential theologies, these starting point theologies from which all other theology comes from? That God is creator, he is sovereign, he is not bound by his creation in any way. Can you agree on that? Good. Because, as we study Stephen we'll see that that is a debatable point. So enter Stephen. In the past two weeks, we've looked at Stephen's speech in chapter 7. We've examined it. First, we focused on the patriarchs. That's Abe, Ike, Jake, and Joe. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They represent a... Thank you for laughing at that, Sharon. I thought it was pretty funny at 2.30 in the morning, too. They represent a supreme creator God stepping into his birdhouse of a world to make a big promise to some guy from Ur, just some random shepherd from Ur, some farmer, Ur being in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near the promised land, which is important. And God steps into Abraham's life and calls him. Um, A God that big, bigger than the universe, creator of all things throughout the enormity of time and space, making promises to some backwoods shepherd. It's pretty amazing. He then begins to fulfill his promises through another exiled pilgrim shepherd, and his name was Moses. Moses, to whom the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth reveals his name. This creator has a name, and his name is I Am, which is so confounding and actually so perfect. But he reveals to Moses his name, he reveals to Moses his holiness, and he reveals to Moses his will, his plan for his people. 
to Moses. Who's Moses? He's some exile. He's some outcast wandering in the wilderness. And to Moses, this fugitive farmer, he gets to meet with God on the mountain and then deliver God's people. And so we can add to those basic theologies we've already constructed. Not only is God sovereign and supreme over everything he's made, not only is he above his creation in a divine and unique way, but now we can add that he is intimately involved with his creation. He steps into his creation. He acts on behalf of his creation. We saw this way back in Genesis 1 as well. Remember, he creates the heavens and the earth, and what does he call it? Go ahead, say it. Good. Good. He doesn't make it and say, well, all right, that's okay. He sees it and he loves it. He values it. He calls it good. And humanity, what did he call humanity? Not just good. Very good. He looks at Adam and Eve and he says, no, this, this is great. This is more than good. This is very good. I love this. And he gives them his image and he says it's very good. And he shows how much he values this pinnacle of creation, that's us, by calling them and guiding them and revealing to them his nature and his will. It's pretty amazing. This huge, enormous God coming down and and communioning, meeting with us. But Stephen sees a message in this. These, the most basic of all theologies. It's a crucial message. It's a message that his accusers, the Pharisees and Sadducees, unbelievably cannot see for themselves. Or perhaps they refuse to see because it would cost them their pride and their power and their prestige. If they really believe these things, what we'll see today is that they would give up a lot of the power that they have willingly if they really believed it. But they don't. And so Stephen's message this morning is this. God is separate from creation. He's supreme above creation. He is sovereign over creation. He is the creator. So why in the world would these enemies of the, good, of the gospel insist on limiting him to his creation? chaining him down or to use the metaphor i've already used why would they reduce him to a powerful little bird in their fancy little bird cage which they believe that they alone have the key for why would they do that why would they confine the presence of god to one specific location the temple you'll see number one and two both deal with this god cannot be confined and yet here's the pharisees sadducees the sanhedrin doing exactly that chaining him down to the temple. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I'll apologize. I already mentioned how late I was up last night and late we got home. So I don't have slides. So I don't. if you find that useful, I don't know if you do, but I apologize. I don't have any. So you'll just have to listen, especially hard. It's a good exercise for you. Anyway, let's read verses 44 to 50 of Acts 7. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan that God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And this is what I mentioned before from Isaiah 66. 
Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? We'll pause there. When we studied Exodus three years ago, we spent a great deal of time reading and learning about the tabernacle, right? A lot of time learning about the tabernacle. And Mary, it was Mary, right? That You made that tabernacle with the kids. Uh, they made a little to scale tabernacle. It was really cool. Um, so what was the tabernacle? Perhaps you don't know. The tabernacle was a tent, a relatively fancy tent with some special sacred flourishes, but basically it was just a tent. And Stephen, who had just finished emphasizing how Moses was rejected despite being in the presence of God, begins his discussion about the tabernacle here in Acts 7 by highlighting the fact that while Moses was in the presence of God, he was literally being given the blueprints from God to build this tent about this special holy tent. It was not Moses who designed the tabernacle at all. Moses went up the mountain and got the blueprints from God. Then Moses went down, gave the instructions to the people, and they built it. It it was not Moses who defined every detail, every stitch of every curtain, every drop of melted bronze, every decorative little gold pomegranate, every inch of holy space, all of it, every fine detail, was designed by God himself. Moses was just the conduit through which that message came. God himself directed every detail about his holy dwelling place. The author of Hebrews makes this clear when he or she, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, writes in Hebrews 8.2 of the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. The author of Hebrews goes above and beyond. It was built by the Lord, not by human hands. Well, wait a second. Now hold on a second, author of Hebrews, because God may have come up with the blueprints, but in Exodus there's seven chapters, seven whole chapters devoted just to design specifications. God's saying, this is how I want this built, this is how I want this built, this is how I want this built. And then, a couple chapters later, there's five more chapters that goes through every detail exactly as it did before, except it says, and so they built it. So all the same details, it's basically word for word, all, all the same specifications, and they did it. They, they did what God had told them to do. It's a portrait of obedience. Five whole chapters, and you remember, because we read it, excruciatingly boring details, declaring so-and-so built this tabernacle structure in this way, just as God had commanded. But it's an act of worship. And so they did the building. That's what those five chapters are saying. They built it as God said. But despite all this work being done by the people of Israel, the author of Hebrews declares that no, it was built by the Lord. The Lord built it, not human hands. Why? Because they were his designs, his orders. It was his work project. So he gets all the credit, he gets all the use out of it. God was the first micromanager. Specifically, here's every little tiny detail. He had a say in every aspect of that little tent. And so, do you follow Stephen so far what he's saying? He's saying, just as God spoke and ordered and managed all of creation in Genesis 1, so too did he speak and order and manage the creation of this new holy dwelling place he's building for himself. It's like a microcosm of the universe. God speaking and it coming to be. He designed his home. And I use the phrase home very loosely because as we understand, God does not need a home. 
He doesn't need shelter in any way. He is above the, the, the use. It was just the place where he made his presence known to his people. So I use the phrase, if I say home, I'm using it very leniently. The tabernacle was all God's plan, and it was all God's doing. And so, as Stephen says in verse 45, the people of Israel under Joshua were then led by the tabernacle into the presence of God. And and in so doing, fulfilled the covenant promises made by God to Abraham. So it's all starting to come full circle. Stephen talks about Abraham and the promises, and now here he mentions Joshua leading the tabernacle into the promised land to fulfill those promises. Or to be more accurate, under the guidance of the presence of God as represented by the tabernacle entering the Holy Land. And so the Israelites begin subduing and conquering the peoples that live here. Now, do you want to hear how Stephen's being cheeky here? Because he's being very cheeky. He's being very subversive. Here's how. Um, If you read verse 45, go ahead and look in verse 45. What's the first of the famous names that's mentioned in verse 45? Joshua. He's a very famous guy. All the Sanhedrin there at the mention of Joshua would know that he took up the mantle of leadership after Moses. He led the people into the promised land. He was faithful and obedient and strong. But here's your Greek word nerd moment for the day, and you knew it was coming. Here it is. Your word nerd moment for the day. Joshua is a Hebrew name. Yeshua. It's a Hebrew name. And you want to know what Joshua translates, translates into in the Greek? You know what name goes from Joshua, and when it gets translated into Greek, becomes what? Jesus. Yes. Nice guess, Trish. Well, I'll probably knew that already. Jesus. Actually, Jesus. Um, Joshua is literally the same name as Jesus. They mean the same thing. Kind of like Yon is the same as John, just or just in a different language. Joshua and Jesus are the same name. So while Stephen is speaking in Greek, as he would have in this situation, as he is mentioning the Old Testament figure who brought God's people into the earthly promised land, who we call Joshua, he actually says the name Jesus. Jesus led God's people into the promised land. The same name as the man whom Stephen is witnessing about. Jesus, Jesus. There's a subtle suggestion here, maybe not too subtle, that since they have the same name, that Jesus is like Joshua. Just as Joshua, Jesus, led God's people into a place of great promise and fulfillment, so too does Jesus, Jesus, lead God's people into a greater life of greater promise and greater fulfillment. Jesus, like Joshua, is surrounded by the holy presence of God. Joshua had the tabernacle. That was the holy presence of God. Jesus just was the holy presence of God. Everything he did was the holy presence of God. Joshua expels the enemies of God's people, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Canaanites. Jesus expels the enemies of God's people, sin, death, evil. It's another subtle slap in the face of the Sanhedrin by Stephen. So anyway, back to the speech. I just thought that was great how cheeky that was. Stephen makes it clear that God himself built the tabernacle, right? He makes it clear that God's presence in the tabernacle defeats the enemies of God. And then he makes it clear that this was the state of things for several hundred years until the time of David, the second famous name mentioned in verse 45. We see in David an important turning point in the history of the temple. In fact, sorry, the history of the tabernacle. 
Because after David comes Solomon, his son, and with Solomon comes the temple. There is no longer a tabernacle. David believed, and his heart was in the right place here. And I'll talk about this more next week. David believed that it was unfair and unjust for him, this lowly shepherd boy who was raised to king, he thought it was unfair for himself to live in a beautiful cedar palace while the creator of heaven and earth resides in a dirty old tent. He looked at that situation and said, what am I doing in a palace when God has this camping tent that all the other Israelites have? He didn't think that was right or fair. He wanted God himself to have a palace as well. And so during the reign of David's son Solomon, because David was not allowed to build the temple, there was too much blood on his hands, during the reign of David's son Solomon, the tabernacle, which God himself had planned and built and designed, became outdated. It was no longer needed. Now it was replaced by the temple, this enormous, beautiful, richly decorated and impressive building right in the middle of the capital city of God's nation, Israel. So their heart was in the right place. But here's the problem. God did not plan the temple as he had planned the tabernacle. Humans did. God did not desire the temple as he had desired a tabernacle. Humans did. God did not build the temple as he very specifically built the tabernacle. Humans did. The creator was not in control of his dwelling place any longer. He had still blessed the temple. He still filled the temple with his presence. In fact, we sang a song earlier in the service, Lord, let your glory fall, which is all about God coming into the presence of the, the temple building the temple. And it's a beautiful song. And, and God was still there. He still honored what those men had, had done. But he did not want it. He did not need it. He was completely content with his dusty old tent that he had built for himself. And perhaps you'll notice how Stephen too depreciates the temple, which makes sense since one of the charges that he's on trial for is that he blasphemed the temple. That's what got him into this mess in the first place. But in verses 44 to 46... Those are fairly long verses. And the tabernacle is named specifically first as the tent of testimony and then as the tabernacle. And these are long verses. And the purpose and the power of this tent are drawn out and elaborated on through these three verses. Okay, so tabernacle, 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 tabernacle. Long, elaborate, clearly defined. Right? But then he gets to verse 47. And verse 47, he doesn't even name the temple. He can't even spit the word out of his mouth. It's tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. And then when he gets to the temple, he doesn't even mention the temple. Verse 47 says, it was Solomon who built it, the house. That's all. all of, he's on trial about the temple, and he doesn't even talk about the temple. He can't even say the word. It's just Solomon. It's so dismissive. He doesn't go into any detail about it as he did with the tabernacle. It's, I think that's great. It's, again, Stephen is so cheeky. He doesn't even name the temple. The temple gets one tiny verse, and it's only referred to as a house for God that Solomon built. And notice who did not build it. God did not build it, as he had very specifically built the tabernacle. Solomon built the temple. And Stephen's not the only one who minimizes the temple, by the way. Part of what makes the Sanhedrin's blind devotion to the temple so frustrating is that God himself didn't value the temple. And scripture proves it. After David commits to building God a palace, God's response through the prophet Nathan 
is essentially, you know what, Davey, my boy, thanks, appreciate it, that's very kind of you, but I don't need a fancy building. In fact, since we left Egypt those hundreds of years ago, have I ever complained about my tent? No. I don't need a palace. I don't want a palace. I want a tent. I built it for myself. It's where I want it to be. And as my people move around, I move with them. I don't need a temple. If you want to look that up, that is... Oh, shoot. I forgot to write it down here. Second Chronicles. No. Second Samuel 7. If you want to look at the story of David wanting to build... It's great. It's a fascinating little encounter. And we'll talk more about it next week. But God says, I don't need this temple. I am happy in my Hillroy tent. I'm happy camping out in the wilderness with my people. And so clearly Stephen disapproves of the temple and he has divine precedent to do so. God also kind of disapproves. And again, that must be a real slap in the face for the Sanhedrin who value the temple as their own little birdhouse into which they cram the almighty God and keep outsiders away. That's what they do with the temple. They stuff God in and keep others away. And so Stephen's message is that the temple system is a broken system, inherently broken. God designed the tabernacle, but humans designed the temple. And there's one major tragic flaw in the temple system. One big difference between, between the tabernacle, which gets approval, and the temple, which does not. Anyone want to guess the critical difference between the temple and the tabernacle? And I've suggested it already. What's the big difference between the two? Who created it is a major point of difference, but the the function of each is inherently completely different. Mobility. Thank you, Lisa. One can move and one is fixed in place. The tabernacle was designed to be picked up and moved around wherever God's people went. If they needed to go fight the Amorites, there goes the tabernacle to fight the Amorites. Right? As the Israelites followed the divine guidance of their holy God, they literally followed the divine presence of their God via the tabernacle. The tabernacle went everywhere they went, and it was central to their life, literally at the center of their camp, everywhere they went. The tabernacle was a portrait of how God was always at the center of their lives, no matter where they happened to be, no matter what they were doing. To paraphrase a guy named W. Manson, never heard of this guy, but he had a great quote, so to paraphrase him, the tent was a portrait of God's never-ceasing, never-halting desire to save his people. It never rested. It was always on the go because God was always doing something for his people. He never stopped. He never took a break. He was always there with them. He continually advanced them throughout the promised land. Does that make sense so far? Okay. The temple, however, was this stone and wood structure, immobile, rooted to the spot in Jerusalem until about 70 AD when Rome crushed it. And with this fixed structure came a fixed mindset. And this is the problem that Stephen is addressing with the Sanhedrin. The confines of God that they attempted to put up. With a fixed structure comes a fixed mindset. It lent itself to the idea that God was somehow limited. That the creator of the unfathomably complex and glorious birdhouse known as the universe was somehow only to be approached in this one tiny minuscule corner of his creation this fancy building. That this building was the only place God was at work, the only place where he could be worshipped, the only place where God was. Do you see the problem with that? There's all kinds of problems with that. 
as the caretakers of this divine birdhouse, it was therefore understood that the Sanhedrin were the only ones with true access to the holy God whom they tried to force into it in some way. They were the gatekeepers and key holders. They did not need to follow God to new places. God wouldn't do anything new. He's got his temple. He's got his palace. Nothing new needs to happen now because he's fixed in place. God is chained to Jerusalem now. But that is ridiculous. The great God who created the vastness of the heavens and the earth could only be found in and around the temple in Jerusalem where he was contained by them, the bird keepers. It's preposterous. And so can you begin to understand Stephen's frustration and the early church's frustration with the, the Jewish leadership council? It must have been extremely frustrating. The most fundamental theological truths, God is almighty creator, God is sovereign over creation, God acting wherever and with whomever he wants. They're just crushing it to death. They're crushing it out of the people through the temple. This temple, which was supposed to be this beautiful thing on earth. This place of prayer where people could come from all over the world and know who God is. It wasn't that. It was wall after wall after wall after wall keeping people away from God. The most fundamental theological truths beaten to death by the Sanhedrin. They attempted to limit the limitless, to put boundaries around the boundless, to hold power over the infinitely powerful. They assumed they had God locked away in their fancy, pretty little cedar and gold box. And then they treated that box as their own little footstool that they propped their feet up on and kicked back, saying, we got this under control, we got it all figured out. With God in his little box. But that is not how that works. I hope you see that and know that. I hope that's very clear. Solomon... Solomon may have been misguided when he built the temple, but at least he acknowledged the ridiculousness of trying to contain God in a pretty box. Stephen begins to quote Solomon in verse 48. He says, The Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. That's not Stephen's thinking. That's Solomon's thinking. Solomon, the guy who actually built the temple. That's Solomon's critique of the very thing that he was built, building. As Solomon was dedicating the temple to God in 2 Chronicles 6.18, he said, but will God really live on earth among people? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built you. Those are the words with which Solomon commissions this great, beautiful temple. He understands that in no way is he limiting God by building this beautiful thing. Solomon was very wise. Wise enough that even without our scientific knowledge of the unknowable enormity of a universe with supernovas that's billions of miles away, he didn't know about any of that. But he still knew that God was pretty big, right? He had no concept of how big, but you know what? Even with all our science, we have no concept of how big our God really is, do we? But Solomon at least had the sense to understand that considering anything on earth as a place for God to be housed and contained was utterly preposterous. Stephen picks up this theme as well. I'm almost done in case you're worried about Father's Day brunch. Stephen picks up this theme as well. He quotes Isaiah 66 verse 1, saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Can you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Can you build a temple as big as the universe that I can call a home? No. Didn't my hands make both heavens and earth? The heavens and the earth? 
the interesting thing about this verse, I mean, it's clear. It, I don't need to elaborate on what Isaiah and Stephen are saying with this verse. I, don't, I think you get it. But the interesting thing about this verse is the verse that comes after it. And the Sanhedrin, they would have memorized. They had all of their Hebrew scriptures memorized. So when, when Stephen quotes Isaiah 66.1, immediately they're thinking Isaiah 66.2. And you want to know what Isaiah 66.2 says? Here's Isaiah 66.2. But this is the man to whom I will look. This is God speaking. The man I will show favor to. He that is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And there's another slap in the face of the Sanhedrin. He who is humble, who is contrite. God looks for those who can imagine the huge glory of God and is humbled by it. Not who sees the greatness and glory and splendor of God and says, yeah, I can contain that. I can box that in. I can create a set of rules that puts boundaries around this glory. That's not what God's looking for. But doesn't that sound like the Sanhedrin? An awful lot. While they attempt to glorify God, the Sanhedrin, and that's what they were trying to do. I'm not saying their faith was ingenuine. It's just misplaced. But while they attempt to glorify God, all they are really doing is getting prouder and prouder and more and more self-righteous. That's all that they're doing. They don't tremble at the words of Isaiah 66.1. They ignore them. They defy them, in fact. And Stephen calls them out for it. And so here is Stephen's problem with the Sanhedrin. And I'm going to close with this and then one more quick thought. Why do you enemies of the gospel attempt to take the supreme creator of the universe and stuff him into your lovely little birdhouse? Why do they attempt to lock him in and contain him there and then put fences around the creator in a cage and make people grovel and pay to see him? Like some circus act. Why do they insist that God must be contained in one and only one place? This tiny building in a tiny city, in a tiny country, on a tiny planet, in an enormous universe. They're saying that's where God is? The one place where God is? I don't think so. That's ridiculous. But that's what they're insisting is that God can be contained in one place. Even one specific holy place. Stephen is confronting them with this question. Why do they love and respect the birdhouse more than the one who created all birds and all houses? All of creation. They love their little temple more than they love their father God. Why do they insist that God who created the vastness of the heavens and the earth, who rules over all creation, must be confined to one building in the middle of nowhere? How can they betray even the most basic of theologies and then declare Stephen to be the blasphemous one? Stephen's just reminding them of the most basic elements of their theology, and they condemn him for it. In fact, as we know, stone him to death for it. He was accused of blasphemy because he spoke against the temple. And he doesn't attempt to deny these charges. He does, continues to depreciate the temple. So he doesn't deny them. Instead, he attempts to justify his position by highlighting how Scripture and even God himself actively devalued their pretty little birdcage for them. If they would just read it, study it, and know it, they would see that they need to hold much more lightly to the temple than they do. So what does this mean for us? I mean, 
Hopefully you don't do this to God. Hopefully you don't put boundaries and limits on him. Um, sometimes it's hard not to. You think this is how God should be. And this is what I wrestled with in the last two weeks, dealing with funeral stuff. It's not right and it's not fair. And why would this happen? How could this happen? I, I attempt to put boundaries and limits on God too. But what does all of this that I've said mean to us? Well, next week... We will talk about what this means to us individually, as well as collectively as a church. To have a God not bound up in one specific location, like a tabernacle or a temple. For now, I want to leave you with the same thought as Stephen. So, take this and do with it as you will. Our Father formed Israel as a child through Moses, and showed them his great love. That's what our Father did through Moses, as Stephen says. Before that... Our Father stepped into his creation and made promises to Abraham to show humanity, all of humanity, his great love. That's what Stephen says. But before that, and way before that, our Father created the heavens and the earth with and through his Son, Jesus Christ, as it says in John 1, in the same way that a dad builds a birdhouse with his son. The same Last year for Father's Day, Tegan and I built a birdhouse in kindergarten together. All the dads did with all the kindergartners. Um, in the same way that I sat with Tegan on my lap and she hammered away at the nails, is a very similar way to how God created all of existence with his son. Through his son. He is sovereign over creation. He is supreme over creation. And he is separate from creation. So don't try to box him in. Don't ever assume that you've got God figured out. Our Father cannot will not be confined. And that is our starting point for next week. We wouldn't want him to be confined anyway, because if we confine him, the stuff he does when he breaks out of our confines always, always benefits his people. Just when Israel thinks they got him figured out, he breaks out of those expectations and does something marvelous for them. Which is amazing. What a great dad. Let's pray. Father, you are a good dad. Thank you that you are not confined to one place or to one person or to one city or one building. That you are everywhere and in everything because you created all things and all things reflect the degree of your glory. You are so good, Father, and we are so unworthy of your presence. But we thank you, Father, that you share your presence with us. Wherever you are, um, Wherever you are, Father, I pray that we would find you and see you and praise you. I thank you that you are beyond our understanding, beyond our expectations, beyond our confines, and that you always do good for us in ways that we don't expect, as you did through Abraham and the patriarchs, as you did through Moses, as you did through Joshua, and as you did through Jesus. You continue to blow our minds, Father. You are a good dad, and thank you for taking care of us and making yourself known to us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Hope you have a good time with your families today, um, celebrating that day. And next week, we'll see what all this means to us anyway.